Hello, welcome to Everyday Anarchism. My guest today is Dilar Derek, author of the new book, The Kurdish Women's Movement, History, Theory, and Practice. Uh, Dilar, this is a, a topic, Rojava, if I, I said it wrong mm -hmm. again, no, I said it right, Rojava, Kurdistan, the Kurdish Women's Movement, I mean, democratic confederalism, these are all terms that I hope we can define, that mm -hmm. I've wanted to cover since I started this podcast a little over a year ago, and yet I could not find a work, an author, someone that I wanted to speak to until your book came mm -hmm. along. So thank you so much for, for writing this book. I mean, it must have been a labor of love. It was clearly a labor. <laughs> thank you so much, Graham. It's it's really nice to be on, on your program. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And thanks for your kind words. Uh, it was definitely a labor, <laughs> a big <laughs> amount of labor, but also it was a labor of love. I uh, wrote it in a uh, over a long period of time, it, and much of it was written during the pandemic. So it was a mm. bit uh, difficult uh, as well. And of course, things are always um, happening at high speed in Kurdistan. Developments are always ongoing. So uh, I hope it's it's you know when people pick it up and and read it, they'll see how much there is still left to study so many things that I didn't even get to write about uh, because it is obviously it's an old movement it's a four decades old organized struggle so there's much to cover but I hope it's interesting to people yes well I found I found the book interesting although as as we already discussed it is a book that has so much in it it's not a book like the recent uh David Graeber David Wingrow book which has a lot in it but also leaves most stuff out and is kind of a page turner and is fun to read and that's why it's sold however many copies this is not that kind of book i'm hoping this is the kind of book that will start at least in the english language a academic and intellectual conversation about the kurdish women's movement and kurdistan because it right now it seems very shallow there's a sort of shallow uh, NATO style celebration of 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 women with guns, which is great, as as opposed to those other women who are oppressed. And then there's also a a vaguely positive spirit in the in the internationalist left about this movement, without any deep knowledge of it. I had no deep knowledge of it until I had read your book. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a very important point is is to say that uh, many people, uh, whether they are on the left or not, uh, only started knowing more about, let alone the Kurdish women's movement or the Kurdistan freedom movement, about the Kurds in general, only mm -hmm. after 2014. So, and that's because of the rise of the so-called Islamic State and the fight against it. And suddenly, uh, for the first time ever in history, Kurdish women <laughs> were featured in the mainstream, whether it's in academic scholarship, in the media, just culturally, it, it opened up debates in different political circles. And I always like to stress this uh, because it's not uh, like now we see more coverage, we see more engagement. So in, in a way, it's of course normal that people's knowledge of it is not so deep because it's actually very recent that people even started writing books or articles and things like that. And also, of course, 2014, uh, and I include myself in this, many of us wrote in 
uh, emotionally mobilized ways because it was a very, very um, kind of, uh, yeah, it was a very crucial time in history in the Middle East and in the world. And uh, so how the discourse was narrated, how it evolved also had to do with this very intense period um, because of all these attacks and everything that happened ever since. Um, so it's hard to do justice to a movement that is actually much more than uh, what people have seen in a very short period of time. And I think this is particularly interesting and important considering uh, the, the question of the women's liberation, because it's very dangerous to think that it's only because of the weapons that women uh, mm. developed into a movement. You know, there is so much ideological depth, political history, uh, resistance in prisons, in popular uprisings, in civil society, and inside society, in media, culture, art, that uh, laid the foundations for the fight against ISIS. So what I wanted to do with the book is to make sure that people actually also can catch up, you know, through my book or other sources, of course, the ones I cite, um, just to see that actually revolutionary struggles take long time. Transformation doesn't just happen overnight. Sometimes periods in history are very crucial and what you do then matters a lot, but actually most of the struggle is a long-term struggle, it's protracted. So in that sense, um, I think that was very important also, because as you mentioned, there is a, uh, very conscious and deliberate, I think, ideologically motivated desire to depoliticize movement, to represent it in ways that actually it doesn't see itself, and and this is very dangerous. And I think this is an uh, this is an attack by the capitalist system also on you know changing the history of movements. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I was struck reading your book with the parallels to George Orwell's very famous account of. The Spanish Civil War or the Spanish Revolution that, you know, when he was reading about it from outside, it was some sort of vaguely good liberal democratic thing fighting the fascists. And when he got there on the ground, he discovered it was actually much more revolutionary. And that actually mm -hmm. explains to him why the liberal democratic governments were not were not fighting the fascists mm -hmm. on the ground because they the governments actually knew that this was that this was something mm -hmm. very, very radical and they wanted no part of that although they were quite happy to vaguely frame it as part of the liberal democratic progressive movement and i certainly see that same sort of coverage mm -hmm. uh, of the kurdish movement yeah definitely and i think the the gender dimension is, uh, is is like key to understanding that because it's this is not a liberal uh, movement uh it is a radical movement it's a revolutionary movement it's you know there are different dimensions to it but uh its ideological um perspective is very much based on a deep critique of patriarchy of capitalism of the state especially and so um you know, putting all of that aside and just focusing on the practice is not uh, going to give anyone a good understanding of what this movement actually aspires towards. And also, um, it's also, I think, a way of separating struggles and movements from each other. So it's like, you know, by making it look like something else, you prevent other radical and revolutionary kind of circles from approaching it. And here's where I think knowledge production on movements is very important. One needs to be very cautious and sensitive about it and have historical kind of awareness as much as possible about who is interested in portraying what movement in what way at what time. <laughs> 
because very often uh, you know the content the kind of you know actual historical meaning of any given struggle can be really instrumentalized for the powers of capitalism and imperialism and the state above all um, and I think that's why uh, it's always important to just go and go to the source, go even if you cannot actually go to Kurdistan yourself, just to familiarize yourself more directly with what is coming from the movement rather than what the media is saying this movement is about. Yeah, yeah and that's that's why you wrote the book for those people who, you know, haven't read the book. Um, you wrote the book in some ways as, as an oral history, as much as mm -hmm. possible, the voices of the women who were in the movement. Before we get to those voices, <laughs> I want you know from from the perspective of an uh, you know an anarchist intellectual podcast, which is very much what this is. I, I thought we could start by talking about uh, Murray Bookchin briefly, and then Abdullah Oshalan, who adapted some of Bookchin's ideas to create democratic confederalism. And even before that, could you just explain? Um, very briefly, uh, who the Kurds are and and where they are, in that people may not understand. I mean, they, everyone knows, I think, now about Syria and with the recent protests, Iran, obviously Iraq and Turkey. All of these things come together in a way that, for uh, I mean, look, in, in America, we're we're a long way away from this. We also don't understand the geography of Eastern Europe either. So, if you can give us a little geographical lesson and then we can get into the the ideas animating this movement sure sure i can do that um so the kurdish people live in an area that they call or others have sometimes historically called kurdistan uh, which is a region in what is sometimes called upper mesopotamia uh to refer to the ancient term um and that is also i'm saying this because i want to stress that the history of the nation state in the region is actually very uh it's still very young the nation state as an idea so it only came into existence after um, the, the collapse of the ottoman empire and subsequently, uh, French and British diplomats, uh, Sykes and Picot, um, you know, acting on behalf of, uh, the, of, of France and Britain, um, they basically divided this region into different uh, parts. And um, this also constituted the so-called division of Kurdistan. And it's, it's like, you know, you have to be always careful because, you know, what who defines a region in what way but basically this is usually referred to as the first and like final also division of kurdistan uh, exactly uh, in 1923 there was a, a treaty called the treaty of lausanne which finalized this so next year is actually the 100th anniversary oh. um so this created uh, the different nation states in the region and so the kurds live in uh, turkey in Iraq, in Iran, and in Syria. And as a result of this kind of uh, division into these different nation states, which were also very much shaped by um, European style nationalisms, Arab nationalism, Turkish nationalism. Turkish nationalism in particular was very much based on this French model of the state, which is one nation, one language, one flag, um, and a secular state as well. But in general, uh, Sunni Islam has, has dominated politics uh, there. So uh, the Kurds have, as a result, been minoritized, uh, been 
denied their existence and they have faced many genocides actually also in this history. Uh, there were uprisings also, however, so often these genocides and massacres happened in response to uprisings and rebellions. And uh, so yeah, the movement that I'm specifically talking about and here's again an important thing to stress is that there are many different Kurdish political traditions. So yes. <laughs> um, that, that came through very clearly in your book. <laughs> yeah. So so you know there were early nationalistic aspirations at the beginning of the 20th century to create an own independent Kurdish nation state, uh, and there are many different uh, political trajectories. Um, so the one that I'm specifically focusing on is uh, the movement that evolved around the Kurdistan Workers' Party starting in the 1970s inside Turkish borders. So normally I would say Bakur, Bashur, Rojava or Roshelat uh, to talk about East, West, South uh, and uh, North <laughs> Kurdistan, but I'm going to avoid that just for the sake of this podcast to avoid confusion. But Northern Kurdistan, this would be within the borders of the Turkish state. Um, there, uh, kind of mostly student-based, student and workers-based uh, circle of political activists around uh, Abdullah Öcalan, who himself also was a student at the time. Um, they developed a perspective for, um, you know, they very much came from the left inside Turkey. It was a, um, a socialist, a leftist uh, group that was very much uh, part of the revolutionary left at the time, which was very strong at some point in Turkey before the military coup in 1980, which decimated the left and imprisoned people, massacred and so on. Um, so there was at the time... Um, a reluctance in the Turkish left to talk about the so-called Kurdish question, which, you know, the Kurds are not a small group. They're estimated to be about 20% of the Turkish population, of the population in Turkey. And it is also a class issue because those regions have been historically underdeveloped and, uh, you know, there has been always forced migration and violence against uh, Kurdish people in the Republic. Uh, so there was that problem of not tackling the Kurdish question in Turkey, but also uh, there were Kurdish political, like, nationalistic um, uh, yeah, groups that were also not revolutionary, that were not taking a class perspective, uh, that were not kind of resisting imperialism, but they wanted to just become part of the hegemonic system with their Kurdish identity. So the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, which was formed in 1978, formally in its Congress, and started armed struggle in 1984, uh, after the famous uh, Diyarbakir prison resistance in the 1980s, um, is basically presents itself as an alternative that says, you know, we have to have, um, we need to solve the Kurdish, uh, you know, freedom question, basically. Uh, but this can only happen, you know, from a revolutionary perspective that also, you know, can be a solution for the peoples of the region. So it was never a chauvinistic kind of project that wanted to separate entirely from the Turkish population. In fact, some of the founding members were Turkish themselves, uh, but to kind of have self-determination and autonomy for the Kurdish people at the time uh, with an independent socialist Kurdish state. Uh, and again, this is like Cold War times, but over time this, this changed, especially after the 1990s uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the mass participation actually of many people, especially also women who joined the guerrilla ranks uh, from the villages which were then destroyed by the Turkish army because of their support for the guerrillas. So in that time in the 90s, uh, this question of the state uh, came to be picked up again. 
Um, so I think we can like maybe continue from that when we talk about the role of Erdogan and, and influences on him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, just just keep going. This sounds perfect. I have no questions <laughs> right. or comments. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So Abdullah Erdogan is uh, currently imprisoned. He's a political prisoner, uh, and he has been in prison since 1999. Uh, he was abducted on the 15th of February 1999 uh, after uh, leaving Syria and trying to seek asylum uh, to find a political solution to the Kurdish question. So he had been based in Syria for 20 years and the Kurdish, uh, you know, the, the movements, uh, political structures, its education, its training for guerrilla warfare, happened between Lebanon and Syria most of the time in the, in this period, but also in the mountains of Kurdistan. So Kurdistan is a very mountainous region, as people will figure out at some point. Um, so uh, yeah, so he was abducted in a NATO operation. Uh, this was led by the, uh, by the CIA, by the Mossad, by the British, and uh, also if, you know, with the support of other, uh, and of course the Turkish intelligence, and he was taken to Turkey as a result. Uh, and he's been there ever since, and he's the main ideologue that he's one of the, I mean, he has been historically the leader, he was part of the, he's one of the co-founders of the PKK, and uh, a very charismatic figure who's very much, um, you know, kind of um, uh, seen as like the, the leader. And however, of course, he is he's in prison, but he continued his uh, writings and his perspectives uh, from prison and the five volumes he produced there, which are titled uh, all together as the Manifesto for Democratic Civilization, that presented his new paradigm, uh, which then became the framework for the new project of the movement around democratic confederalism, which basically is based on uh, ecology, women's liberation and radical democracy. It is a fundamental critique of the state and patriarchy and capitalism. So the critique of patriarchy is a very important part of his work. And it's also, uh, it comes from before. So it didn't take him, you know, only until he gets to prison to, to write these things already in the 90s when he was, still free he had written and also in the 80s actually he had written his first uh, kind of uh, pieces on on these questions and the question of the state uh, was already dropped from the program of the pkk in the mid 1990s so sometimes people narrate the story in a um, kind of distorted way there's sometimes people who read short accounts may have encountered a sentence like when ojalan went to prison he had a radical rethinking and then he I've, read, I've read accounts that yeah, say that and, exactly. Exactly, and it's just wrong. It's factually, historically, it's wrong. And I think it's important to to say this because um, it was not, you know, it, it, it didn't happen because he was then imprisoned or it's nothing to do with that. This is older. And actually, it was not something that he came up with by himself in the 90s. There were all kinds of discussions and the women's movement's first steps towards um, autonomous and self-determined structures also came with his encouragement. So there's also the other uh, thing that people sometimes may have heard is that, you know, when he got imprisoned, the women's movement became more autonomous. That's not true as well. It's actually far from the truth. Um, the first steps towards uh, autonomous women's organization, the PKK, came with the active encouragement of Abdullah Jalan when he was free. Uh, he suggested the formation of autonomous uh, guerrilla units, an autonomous women's party, and things like that. So it was very much a dialogue. And um, 
so yeah, in, in prison, because you also asked about uh, Mori Bookchin, uh, Mori Bookchin's work, of course, is uh, probably very well known to many people who are listening uh, yeah, to I the think podcast. So. But um, yeah, so basically, he was among the people, among the titles that uh, Ojalan was able to read. He always had only limited access to prison, because he's just, maybe I should say this as well, he is currently confined, and he has been since 99, on a prison island called Imralı. And for the first 10 years, he was the only prisoner and guarded by 1,000 soldiers. And he it's a high security prison. Uh, he has no access uh, to lawyers, uh, to family. And um, so it's very important also to be aware of that because he is actually the person who initiated the peace process again with the Turkish state. He has uh, continues to have an immense amount of power. So isolating him means basically delaying a political solution. Uh, depriving him of his basic human rights. Um, so he was able to read uh, some of Murray Bookchin's books and also uh, there were other influences as well. So uh, while I don't want to uh, kind of diminish the influence of Murray Bookchin, I just want to say also again to help maybe demystify certain things, it also wasn't just because of Murray Bookchin that Ojalan developed his theories. Like As I said, some of these uh, things, like the critique of the state and patriarchy, uh, they preceded his imprisonment. He started reading Bookchin in prison. So, um, but especially, I would say maybe perhaps, the, I mean, people may disagree, but I think one of the biggest influences that Murray Bookchin had on Ojalan is the question of ecology. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, you know, this understanding uh, environmental or ecological issues as being fundamentally a question of power and hierarchy and domination. So he also draws on this like long durée understanding of Bookchin and also the Fernand Brodel and others who have kind of always argued to understand history in this long-term perspective and, and not just based on what's what's been the latest development. Uh, so he's looking at a 5,000-year-old trajectory of domination and power, very much like Mori Bookchin. And um, the other thing, of course, also that I would say is uh, has been a very big influence on him is uh, the, the question of municipalism, how to organize uh, locally. And again, it's interesting because I would say, and some people have written about this, Mori Bookchin has many references for his work and philosophy, also drawing on the history of, the, of Mesopotamia, of that same geography. And um, similarly, Ojalan is also uh, trying to draw on existing like legacies of uh, social self-organization without the state. Uh, these can be local traditions, you know, indigenous belief systems, um, village uh, structures, and how they have been solving problems and conflicts in their communities. So it's in a way a reanimation of these old practices that the state has destroyed. So I think the question of power and domination, this is this has been one of the biggest influences of Murray Bookchin on, on Ojala. Uh, but especially, I think, the questions of ecology and municipalism and many other things. And I think it's been very nice to see how uh, people who are in, in, you know, in the world of social ecology have in the last uh, years, in the last decade in particular, been so active in, the, in Kurdistan solidarity, so active in like, uh, you know, participating in all kinds of struggles and also the other way around. I think many Kurdish uh, people have learned a lot uh, on ecology by, you know, being befriending people from the world of so social ecology. So that's a very nice and interesting ongoing uh, intellectual and political relationship, I think. 
I mean, I think you've cleared up some things for me that are, again, we're part of the myth about <laughs> Ocalan and Bookchin. So I really appreciate that. It makes sense that the ecology, I mean, that ecology and municipalism, those are the things that Bookchin is best known for contributing uh, to the anarchist movement. So it makes sense that that, um, that that those were the things that were most influential on Ocalan. And then I guess I, I want to get to what it actually looks like in practice right now. But dare I say again, this is my, you know, I said your book was a sociologist book. I'm I'm an intellectual historian. So here's the intellectual mm -hmm. history bit. I am quite comfortable um, with my broad stroke understanding of anarchism as describing Ocalan, democratic confederalism, Bookchin, etc. as all broadly within the sense of anarchist movement as in, you know, autonomous non-state movements of cooperation and eventually confederalism, certainly both Bookchin and Ocalan criticize anarchism in, in their work. And, you know, obviously there's a long history of people who I would consider anarchists. William Morris is another example who are to my mind, within a, a broad sense of anarchism, clearly anarchists, and yet the anarchist label is often associated with individualism or some, something like that, that these people just cannot bring themselves to uh, ad adhere to. I don't know if you have or want to weigh in on that question um, of whether this is, quote, an anarchism. I mean, the Zapatistas, it's the same sort of, it's the same sort of question, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a matter of definition. It's similarly uh, the case with feminism, for example. Um, feminism and anarchism as such, uh, they developed in certain parts of the world, mm. that vocabulary. So it's a matter of uh, how a concept, a practice and method of organizing life has traveled, how it was picked up and engaged with, but also acknowledging that there were, historically speaking, uh, similar ways of life, similar mm. kind of perspectives that maybe didn't call themselves that. For example, it would be a massive injustice to thousands of years of women's resistance to start the story of women's <laughs> resistance with feminism, yes. you know, because it means it implies that people who have not used that label did not also think about liberating themselves from patriarchy or other forms of gendered oppression. So um, if we, that's why, for example, uh, the Kurdish women's movement, I recently did an interview on this, on this question, uh, I, I interviewed someone, and they were saying it would be an injustice to the history of the Kurdish women's movement and the history of feminism to conflate them without uh, this kind of nuance, because mm -hmm. uh, the Kurdish women's movement did not um, come from feminism, it came from the struggle for a free Kurdistan. And then within that, an autonomous women's perspective developed, and it totally uh, engages with the history of feminism, with feminists, it's uh, participating in feminist platforms, and is saying always explicitly that we consider feminism as part of a legacy of human freedom. And likewise, anarchism, to say that uh, what the movements, like basically Ojalan's terminology about democratic civilization or democratic modernity, that these are all uh, with their different uh, shades and shapes and forms, whether it's feminism, ecology, struggles, anar anarchism, youth cultures, uh, you know, artists, uh, villagers uh, continuing to live life without the state. So all of these can be seen as part of a freedom history and i think uh that that's a healthy way of understanding it because i think 
for example, uh, there is a very deep critique of this, and this is what Ojalan is actually appreciating the most about um, anarchist thinkers and practices, is this very morally uh, conscious uh, critique of the state and power and the ability of power to corrupt. And uh, but what is what is important there, and this is where you know uh, he agrees with Bookchin very much, is the need for organization. And it is a myth, of course, as we know that anarchists are against organization. <laughs> this is one of these very stereotypical things that people say to accuse them of certain things. But there is a reality that, especially in advanced capitalist countries, it is becoming more and more difficult for anyone really to organize mm -hmm. uh, because of individualism, because of all kinds of cultural bombardments, because of attacks by the state. You know, it's easy for people to become paranoid and, uh, you know, withdraw socially or you know kind of splinter into so many fragmented uh, groups and that ultimately means that you know it's difficult for people to actually achieve anything and to win you know so what is important is to not become um you know part of a small bubble where everybody agrees uh, but to actually uh, challenge power and that means also laying hands on society and actually daring to open up and and this is what the kurdish movement is is trying to do so in that sense i think anarchism as like a very uh old and very rich tradition a practice that is itself very diverse but i think um i wouldn't uh, take the label and apply it as like just like that to the movement just like i wouldn't do the same with feminism because i think it's a matter of history and also one needs to take a decolonial approach here to acknowledge that you know different resistance traditions come from different places and Ojalan and Bukchin actually both uh, refer to uh, the fact that resistance has always existed as long as un unfreedom has existed so in that sense these more modern uh, kind of uh, practices they are important and they need to be seen and acknowledged but uh, we can have a much more connected history that uh, explains the ways in which different traditions have influenced each other. Because I think, for example, many anarchists in the, the recent past have also been very much inspired by the Kurdistan freedom movement itself. So uh, can you then say they are necessarily democratic confederates? <laughs> you know? Okay, good. I think Hope that's that perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's perfect. I mean, I could not, I mean, I just, there is something, there is something to be said, and there's some interesting work to be done on anarchism as this product of the Enlightenment, as this European thing that starts with Godwin or Proudhon or whatever. I'm much more interested in the in the long durée thing, and I'm happy to use, you know, the lowercase a word anarchism to describe it. And whatever that wherever its origins are, they go further back than we can remember, and they certainly did not begin in the in the 18th century on the mm -hmm. on the european continent and that is the sense that i'm interested in anarchism um okay mm -hmm. so we've got our we've got our two great men out of the way and we've properly situated <laughs> them in history and culture so they are not the heroic lone individual of someone's great man imagination it's mm -hmm. time to finally talk about what you know the kurdish women's movement looks like on the ground um mm -hmm. What would you like people to know about what it's like to be a, a woman taking part in this revolutionary movement in Rojava? Mm -hmm. So um, I think 
one of the most important things that people always need to keep in the back of their mind is that Kurdistan is an incredibly patriarchal uh, place, uh, just like many other parts of the Middle East or the world. Um, it's not easy to be a woman in that part of the world, which is also shaped by war, violence, forced displacement. So uh, it's not something to be taken for granted that there is now a several you know millions strong uh, radical revolutionary women's movement that is organized through uh, structures it's not a vague uh, movement in the sense that sometimes people describe uh, you know uh, a time in history as a, a movement uh, you know it is an organized a very highly structured um, um, you know identifiable and defined kind of movement so it's not a protest movement also this is something i think also to keep in mind it's not a movement that emerged um spontaneously it, it's like it's been in the making for quite a long time so in that sense uh much has happened ever since so it was not easy to be so visible uh for kurdish women even at the beginning of this struggle in the 70s or 80s um as it is today so many of the much of the ability of Kurdish women to now be present in the public, to to speak up, you know, wh wherever they are, is in in much uh, to a great extent owed to the political struggle. It's not something inherent to Kurdish culture necessarily. Some people who are a bit more nationalistic may like to think that you know okay. Kurdish women are just kind of naturally more free or something like that. I think that's not a healthy and also a historical way uh, of approaching it. This is an outcome of struggle. So um, in different parts of Kurdistan and also in the diaspora, the Kurdish movement, uh, the Kurdistan freedom movement and the women's movement in particular is organized um, from the bottom up uh, through communes and, and uh, assemblies. But there are also larger umbrella structures uh, in the different uh, contexts. So inside turkey for example which is a nato country which is a very authoritarian uh, regime it's very difficult for kurdish women to freely organize but at the same time there are people in the legal political sphere there are women in politics for example but also much work is being done on the ground in rojava in 2012 in northern syria uh this was a the first time in the history of this movement where there was a larger space where it was possible to actually implement these ideas in practice of uh, radical democratic self-organization uh, through direct democracy, through um, you know assembly structures and things like that, to institutionalize it also, to put the ideas into practice. Uh, inside Iraq, the situation is a bit difficult because of um, the fact there is a Kurdistan regional government that isn't, you know, friendly with this kind of project. But there in the refugee camp of Mahmoud, for example, since the early 2000s, uh, these ideas have also been kind of part of the self-organization of this refugee camp, which also has a women's assembly, a women's academy, youth assemblies, uh, which all have developed their own social contracts and are, you know, uh, resisting the attacks of the Turkish state, which regularly now is bombing that place, is conducting drone strikes and things like that. Um, and then also, of course, um, there is a struggle in the mountains, uh, which is not just an armed struggle. Uh, the guerrillas are also very much producing culturally. You know, they have programs, they have publications. Uh, there is a huge media infrastructure of the Kurdistan freedom movement. Uh, there are several autonomous women's media outlets, including one uh, all-women television. Um, there's 
publications like newspapers and things like that. And also inside Europe, there's women's and people's assemblies everywhere. So as you can see, this is already, you know, the, the project of democratic confederalism evolves in these different parts in different ways because the conditions are different in Syria uh, than they are in Germany, for example. Uh, but overall, what unites this whole uh, framework is this ideological commitment to uh, the, the framework laid out by Abdullah Jalam. And it is a process of decolonizing life from the state, I would say. So it's trying to be a political uh, community and you know an agent in history, if you will, without having a state and without aspiring towards having one. This does not mean that one doesn't want self-determination. That doesn't mean that one will just accept state violence. So it also includes self-defense. It includes all kinds of you know work towards internationalist uh, you know coalition building and things like that. And the women's movement has been on the front uh, of that. But so 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 while there's on one hand these like very big internationally focused oriented um, kind of claims of the movement, uh, and so much of it is also theory, you know, so much of the movement's work is also education towards the own community, but also together with other uh, revolutionaries and social movements in different parts of the world. But on the other hand, um, really so much of the work of the movement is also in the everyday lives. So for example, in Rojava, uh, there have been so many new uh, women's cooperatives, for example. There's a women's village that has been formed, uh, women's education, so consciousness raising uh, kind of seminars. People, uh, you know, for the first time learning about their own body. People for the first time talking about um, questions that have historically been tabooized. And uh, yeah, so it's basically rendering a population that has historically been deprived of its uh, you know, means to self-defense, means of economy and everything, to give them the tools to self-organize. And the women's dynamic is particularly important here because the idea is that women just participating in whatever political struggle is not enough. Um, they need to be, a, a not, and the youth as well, and any other oppressed and marginalized identity, this includes also religious minorities, for example, in Kurdistan, they need to have their own autonomous decision-making mechanisms. And these actually get to veto the general mixed structures. So there is an internal democracy also inside the movement. Uh, which, you know, not, nothing is perfect, but it is basically a way of uh, establishing mechanisms of accountability inside the movement. Um, and the mo women's movement develops its own perspectives. It has its own takes on different issues. It has its own uh, strategic alliance building work, its own self-defense structures, its own media work. And this is to say, you know, historically, and this is something that the Kurdish women's movement has studied, especially in the 90s, is to say, Women have always participated in different uh, freedom struggles, in anti-colonial movements, in uh, all kinds of uh, different places. Um, but they were often, you know, not necessarily uh, a collective actor that could defend also the interests of an entire group in society. But they were either individuals who had to really fight really hard and were often targeted, assassinated and so on or they were quite separate from the from the society. And so they couldn't really do anything that was transformative towards the society as a whole. So in that sense, the any kind of liberation struggle needs to have these autonomy, internally has to have autonomous uh, structures for oppressed or marginalized uh, um, communities within that society, just to make sure there is the guarantee for freedom. So it's not a freedom in the abstract, but it's a revolution that is organized in the everyday. 
So people see the weapons and the images of women who are speaking out, who are doing you know, all kinds of like spectacular activity, but actually so much of the work and the labor of this movement, I would say, is invisible labor, which includes education, which includes all kinds of like, you know, logistical work, uh, self-organization for basic survival in some places, but also in other places, um, yeah, just planning ahead and seeing how to uh, protect that which has been built. Um, hope that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I, I personally, this is a very uh, contentious topic in, in within the feminist discussion in, in the US, I'm quite skeptical of sort of women only spheres, a quotas based system, that sort of thing, because I associate it with a kind of essentialism, which can, can turn into, you know, trans exclusionary thinking and also mm -hmm. can just, you know, turn into a a lack of freedom. If, if you are a mm -hmm. woman, you must be this way. This kind of goes into this nationalist narrative. Kurdish women are different. And mm -hmm. I was thrilled to see in your book, your, I think, quite brief explanation that this is about integrating women into society, giving them space as opposed to segregating mm -hmm. women from society. It's not that the, the women's groups are separate and apart, but it's a place for the people who would have been marked out for non-participation mm -hmm. to be marked in for participation. And I just thought that distinction, as, mm -hmm. as, as again, an outsider with so little information on this movement, I thought that distinction in your book was crucial. Thank you. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I think it's also about, again, it comes back to the question of just how much patriarchy there is in Kurdish society. Mm -hmm. uh, women also need it, uh, especially in the 90s, spaces to actually find out that other people also disagree with the, with this kind of <laughs> subjugation, to like talk freely, to de eyes, you know, for the first time talk about things that are very intimate in nature. Uh, and, and that safe space was needed, but it was always done in a way that is entangled with the wider struggle. And to say, no, we're not going to create a safe haven for us. Actually, we're here radicalizing so that we can be even stronger as a collective in the wider. So because this is, I think maybe I can share this here also for other people who are interested in organizational methods. It is the principle of the women's movement to not criticize other women in the presence of men, but to keep that criticism for the time when the when there is a more autonomous uh, space, because that criticism or anything can be, you know, of course, everybody should be able to criticize the works also of the women's or of individuals. But usually people may pay attention to always be like a unified front and to criticize each other in the places where it's much more appropriate, where it cannot be like, you know, taken as an occasion to then say, oh, the women, they don't get along and things like that. So likewise, for example, criticism, self-criticism, internal kind of democracy, these are all very important things. And this is all, again, to make sure that they can be individually as well as collectively a very, very transformative and crucial and actually relevant path in the wider struggle, whether it's the Kurdish struggle or any other place, uh, as opposed to saying we just want to create like a place where we all agree with each other and things are fine. So yeah, it's a dialectical process. Great. Well, I think you know, we're running out of time, but that brings me to the last thing that I feel like we had to mention. I mean, I gave a group of my students, high school students, when I was teaching high school, um, uh, one of Oshlan's brief readings about democratic confederalism, and they, you know, they were quite 
in, inspired by it. They they liked it, and it really is. I, I cannot stress this enough, and again, you cover this in the book. Democratic confederalism is not a, a model. Of course, it's not a model for a Kurdish state. It's also not a model for um, Kurdish independence. It's a potential model for for autonomy as as widely as it can be spread. It's not a it's not a Kurdish model, as you said. It's drawn from things like uh, Murray Bookchin and, of course, the thousand year history of struggle for self determination and autonomy. But it is, to to my mind, and this will take us back to this wider uh, anarchist movement. It is something that all of us who want to organize, who want to struggle from, it's, it's not some special Kurdish recipe. Mm -hmm. It is a, a vision that mm -hmm. can be adapted and implemented by any, you know, any community that wishes to do so. And in that sense, it is a, it is a gift from mm -hmm. uh, the Kurdish people as opposed to a Kurdish strategy. Exactly. And this is where, again, people in Kurdistan, in the movement, for example, often say, you know, the biggest form of solidarity one can do is actually to organize also, because all forms of oppression, all violence is in this world uh, connected. For example, the arms trade, uh, much of it is based in, in Europe, you know, the weapons with which wars in the region are being led, with which places like Rojava are currently, as we speak, being targeted. Um, so in that sense, you know, to see struggles in a connected manner and to learn from each other, to say, just like, you know, nobody can claim authorship about, you know, the term autonomy. This is just a way of exchanging uh, experiences to share, strengthen each other and to engage in common struggle fronts, basically. So what works in some parts of Kurdistan even doesn't work in other parts of Kurdistan. Autonomy also means being uh, paying attention to the specific context and to see, you know, to have a good understanding of, of, of reading the society and community, understanding the local and the global at the same time. And this can only happen by engaging in dialogues. So I think people um, who want to learn about the Kurdistan Freedom Movement should, in a way, you know, while acknowledging that so much of it comes from the experience of violence uh, that the Kurdish people have experienced, um, you know, this is not to be underestimated, uh, but at the same time, to not just look at it through the lens of this is a the struggle of a people, mm -hmm. but to see how does this also reflect struggle in general, <laughs> question of revolution in, in general, and how, how do different uh, movements in the world relate to it and what they can learn both from each other. Thank you so much, Dilar. Um... I would love to have you back on the show sometime. We've only scratched the surface. We can cover yeah. new developments or so much more of the book. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was really a big pleasure for me as well. And I hope uh, we stay in touch. And I hope, uh, yeah, that people get inspired, not by the book itself, but by the many resistances that women and peoples around the world are engaged with. And I think learning from movements is one of the biggest things that we can do in this uh, time of big global crisis. So thank you for this conversation, Graham. Thanks, Delora. It was wonderful. <laughs>